0: bides. Dearly Father, thank you so much once again for this wonderful privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for always being real with us, Father, and never holding back, even though it may sting from time to time. We know without a shadow of a doubt that you love us. You love us in a way that we don't even love ourselves, even though we certainly can't love others. We're just so grateful for your grace, your mercy, and your love, of course. The love that was revealed when you sent your Son to die in our stead, to take on the burden and the penalty of sin. For that, we are most grateful and thankful. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, God sees the heart, but... The world sees the choices we make, Um, there's sort of two elements to this obviously. Uh, We are coming off of two key series, there's just something about His name, we looked at Jesus Christ's good name specifically, a perfectly good name, Uh, and then also a good name is to be more desired than great wealth, and that speaks to the experience of carrying a good name as a believer, uh, which obviously is not perfect. And so he's been sort of weaving a common theme throughout our messages as of late. And I think the following is a good summary up here on the board of that theme. A good name is of great prominence in the Bible, starting with the Lord's, of course. We, too, have the opportunity to reveal his good name through us as vessels of mercy. Romans 9, 23 to 24. Again, Good name is of great prominence in the Bible. God obviously wants us to have a good name. starts with the Lord's, of course. Uh, we too though, have the opportunity to reveal His good name through us as vessels of mercy. Go to Romans 9:23, Romans 9:23. And so God has a plan um, for our name, even, our individual name, and that's been part of this theme is that we're called, as individuals, and as individuals we are called even to walk uh, in a manner worthy of the Lord, which means or implies to have, excuse me, <clears throat> a good name. Romans 9:23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called by name, remember, We are not called as a group. We are not called as a congregation. We're not even called to salvation uh, as a group of people. Even the Israelites uh, were not called as a group. They are called individually. Whom he also called by name, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles up here on the board. So what we can glean from that to pad our lessons as of late, is he also called, we are called as individuals by name, we are called as individuals by name, Revelation 3.5 and 2015 point to this as well, go to Revelation 3.5, Revelation 3.5, we are called as individuals by name, and that's very specific because we humans, I think we're really good at hiding in shadows or sort of just skirting by, uh, you know, I mean, <clears throat> but we are nonetheless called as individuals by name. Revelation 3.5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. That's an individual name. So you have, as a believer, your name will not be erased from the book of life. He who overcomes, uh, in other words, he who is saved, will thus be clothed in white garments, and will not erase, I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Uh, and that's a very uh, poignant point there. I will confess his name. So individuality uh, is a big deal to the Lord. How about Revelation 20, verse 15? Revelation 20, 15. So it's true, we are called as individuals by name. I didn't say this, this is what the Bible says. Revelation 20, 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, so individuals are cast out, in other words, are cast into the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into lake of fire, and I was reflecting on this, um, I sometimes wonder how many people would shrink away from their public activities if their audience knew them by name. How many people would shrink away from their public activities if their audience knew them by name? For example, whenever there are riots in this country of ours. I wonder why those rioting rarely stop and give their names to the camera, or why some of them wear masks. Reminds me of hypocrisy, In the Greek seems hypocritical that people stand up for something while wearing a mask. Meanwhile, they are protesting politicians and such whose names and faces are smack dab in view of everyone. It's a funny phenomenon, isn't it? But as always, as we know, God sees beyond the mask into an individual's heart. The rest of us only get to see the choices others make, hence our message title, God Sees the Heart, but the world sees the choices we make. Again, the point on the board, He also called, we are called as individuals by God. Name. And that doesn't just mean at salvation. The Lord knows us by name as individuals for all of eternity, for that matter. Again, we are called as individuals by name. So, in every sense of the idea, it is our individual name that is known by God. And all of our thoughts and activities are tied directly to that name all of our thoughts and activities are tied directly to that name in the sense of permanency if you will this sense of permanency of the name is what is in view here while God has forgiven us he knows everything we think and do past present and future While God has forgiven us, He knows everything we think and do, past, present, and future. And I want to take a moment now, the next five minutes, maybe ten, to um, rid some of your souls of something that might be there, that um, I think just might be. So as a little side note on this idea that God has forgiven us, but He knows everything we think and do, past, present, and future, people sometimes wrongly interpret the Bible verse that says, "God forgets our sins." Some people wrongly interpret the Bible. For example, go to Hebrews 8:12, Hebrews 8:12. I know this for a fact. Some people wrongly interpret the Bible verse that says, "God forgets our sins." <clears throat> Hebrews eight verse 12. For example, verse 12, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Okay. How about Psalm one o three twelve? So people read that and they say, Oh, God must, what, forget our sins? I will remember their sins no more? How about Psalm 103, verse 12? <clears throat> Psalm 103, verse 12. And as you probably can already figure out, if you misinterpret these passages, it's very dangerous. It can put you back into uh, bond slavery, even to liberty. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So I'm going to focus on this phrase because it seems like this is the one that seems to be most commonly misinterpreted. I will remember their sins no more. This is speaking of forgiveness specifically. The penalty for sin has been lifted by Christ's sacrifice. That is true. This doesn't mean that God is somehow blind to our sins. But I'm here to tell you, there are whole factions of so-called Christians that preach that. That somehow this verse says that God is now blind. He's literally blind. And he He doesn't see any sinning that we do anymore. Well, what does that mean? Hello, licentiousness. Hello, lawlessness. And people eat it up. This is speaking of forgiveness specifically the penalty for sin has been lifted by Christ's sacrifice this doesn't mean that God is somehow blind to our sins this misinterpret- misinterpretation has gotten so out of whack that there are whole groups of religious folks out there that preach that since God doesn't supposedly remember their sins in any sense then there's no reason for us to even spend one iota of thought on the subject Sin away. The cross covered everything. God can't even see you sinning anymore. That's actually being preached. And it's being preached as grace. That's not grace. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And that's an abuse of Holy Scripture. It's a complete misinterpretation of Holy Scripture. These are the folks that abuse grace, using it as a license to sin. In theology, we call that something like licentiousness or lawlessness. You know, those are two things that the Bible vehemently opposes. Vehemently opposes licentiousness and lawlessness. Why would that be if God can't see sin anymore? Why would the holy God of the universe be opposed to something he can't see? That's like me saying, hey... Do you like this? Um. Do you not? Do you not like this thing that I'm holding behind, out of view? You'd say, oh, "I have no idea. I can't see exactly." It's it's silliness, but that's exactly what people propose, and it's just a way to do things that are ungodly, frankly. All right, that's that's the sidebar. I just wanted to clear that up because uh, it scares me when I hear people talk along those lines. Our individual name back to the primary course of study while God has forgiven us he knows everything we think and do all things good or bad are attributes of our name all things good or bad are attributes of our name he says you did that right I did well that was cool that was good you know, I don't know if he says cool but you know what I mean that's good that's a righteous thing you're going to attribute that to me you did this thing over here I did that's not so good but it's your name You're the one who did it. Stop blaming everybody else for your problems. You did it. Or you can take the tack, well, God's blind to sin. He can only see the good things I do. He doesn't even see these things. Well, how the heck is he going to discipline you and correct you as his own child? Because that's what a loving father does, right? If he can't see anything you do wrong, how's he going to correct you? You see what I'm saying? The inconsistency, the idiocy that actually exists in Christianity, people eat that stuff up. And they call it grace. That's not grace. That's a lie. And because it's a lie, it's literally antithetical to grace. Because grace is meant to set you free, not put you back into bondage to lies. While God has forgiven us, He knows everything we think and do. All things, good or bad, are attributes of our name. If we are saved, the payment for sinning has been paid for by Christ. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. Does he want you to know things like uh, Romans 8, 1, therefore there's no longer uh, condemnation in Christ Jesus? Of course he does, but that's a positional statement. That's not something you get to drag around experientially and say, well, God can't see my sins anymore, so I can just do whatever the hell I want. I can hurt people. I can offend God. I can do all these things. But since God's blind to sin, who cares? Does that sound like the Bible? No, not at all. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work if any man's work which has he has built on it remains meaning some is going to be thrown out he will receive a reward if any man's work is burned up he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire how's that going to happen how's the negative aspect of that judgment seat let's call it how that's how's that going to happen if god can't see the bad stuff They can't. It's, such, it's so ridiculous. Again, the point of the board, while God has forgiven us, He knows everything we think and do. All things, good or bad, are attributes of our name. If we are saved, the payment for sinning has been paid for by Christ. If God supposedly forgets about our sins altogether, then why in the world does the Bible teach us about repentance and confession after salvation? I mean, who are we confessing to? God, you know, you ever done that to somebody? Hey, I'm so sorry, I wronged you. I didn't know you wronged me. That would be the that would be this what you would be doing to God every time you confess a sin. God, I'm really sorry. I confess, you know, I'm confessing my sin to you. Hey, if this ridiculousness was true, he would be like, what are you talking about? It takes full disclosure on behalf of the judge and the defendant in order to address a set of evidence, does it not? These religious cults suppose that a person stands before the Lord daily without any regard for the power of sin attributed to his or her name. I mean, one of, the, one of the ways that we realize grace, not only in our own lives and in the lives of others, is when we realize that the power of sin exists in our lives and by the grace of God we are able to become nika'o overcomers. We are to be sanctified, set apart. Even though we struggle, like Romans 7 says, we struggle with sin itself and the power uh, of its influence in our lives. So to get rid of all that would be to, uh, frankly, lie um, about the Bible, about truth in the Bible. But that's what these religious cults do. Uh, They suppose that a person stands before the Lord daily without any regard for the power of sin attributed to his or her name. That's garbage doctrine meant to enslave people all over again to their liberties this time. Paul wrote about this. Uh, Context was slightly different, but the the principles are still the same in Galatians 2.4. Remember the Judaizers um, were all... He wrote against the Judaizers in Galatians Um, But the principles are the same. People are always trying to pervert the doctrines of God. Galatians 2.4, But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Go to Galatians 5.13. Galatians 5.13. Again, the context is a little skewed towards the law, and the Judaizers and that kind of thing, but the principles are the same for us even today. There are always people without any scruples sometimes that are willing to take good terms like grace and pervert the heck out of them and say, oh no, it's grace that God doesn't see your sins anymore. You see, it says it right here. As far as the east is from the west, so far as you removed your transgressions from you. So you don't have to worry about that stuff. And see how palatable that sounds? It's evil. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh loves the sin. How about 1 Peter 2.16? 1 Peter 2 verse 16. <clears throat> 1 Peter 2 16. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. God wants you to understand that you sin. He wants you to confess it to Him so that you can come to terms with the power of sin in your lives. That's what it means to be a bond slave of God. That's what it means to be righteous towards God, to be oriented to His will. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. And I think people use and misappropriate Holy Scripture to cover evil. You see, God, as far as the east is from the west, I don't know, he sins over there now. And they can use that as a covering for doing evil, which is a complete abomination of Holy Scripture. Sadly, again, there's a school of thought that has existed, apparently, from the early church until now even. And the gist of it is that since Christ paid for our sins, we are no longer responsible for them since supposedly God has forgotten them all. We do have a responsibility to even confess our sins. Right? Right. But in their system of thinking, God has forgotten all these sins, so therefore we're not even responsible to them at all which I mean why would you confess something you're not even responsible for This is a perfect case of when a potentially good name is ruined by false doctrine Go to Romans 5:20 Romans 5 verse 20 Romans 5 verse 20 So this goes out to licentious folks people that abuse grace, people that call things grace when it's really not. It's just using uh, certain God-given freedoms as a license to sin and then misappropriating Holy Scripture by saying God doesn't even see our sins, so what do we care? Romans 5.20, those are the same people who say, Ah, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Crack me another one, will you? And then I'm going to go drive 20 miles drunk. Romans 5.20 The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's a fact. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? If a believer begins to live in sin, their conscience will convict them by means of the Holy Spirit. How's that going to happen? And why would, I mean, do, you do remember that the Holy Spirit is God, right? But if God doesn't remember sins, what's he going to convict you of? That's, God is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. How's he ever going to convict you of anything? <laughs> if he can't remember it, if he doesn't see your, your sin anymore, what's he ever going to convict you of? You see the, you know, incongruity, if you would, uh, the lack of continuity between concepts here. But yet people eat that stuff up. Eat it up. Huge churches selling this. Millionaire pastors, you know the whole routine. For us, for true believers, if we start living in sin, our conscience gets after us. And God, the Holy Spirit, makes sure of it. So says Holy Scripture. That reminds me of one of the responses from last Thursday evening's roundtable up here on the board. I shared this with you on Sunday. There is something to be said for having a clear conscience as a result of being obedient. There's something to be said for having a clear conscience as a result of being obedient. Well, who convicts you of those things? God, the Holy Spirit. Well, but if he, doesn't, if he doesn't remember sin anymore, what's he going to convict you of? That's the point. Okay, back to our main theme now. I just want to clear that out. That was, that's been bothering me for a long time. We began this evening with a single, simple thought up here on the board. He also called, we are called as individuals by name. Revelation 3.5, we saw that. The book of life. Revelation 20.15 as well. We then dispelled this evening we then dispelled any notion of God becoming somehow blind to our sins once we become believers. That's a fallacy. That's a lie from the pit of hell uh, meant to enslave you all over again. We know from Holy Scripture that any such references are related to positional sanctification only. What we conclude then is that God is omniscient, which means He knows everything Always. He knows everything. Always. That's what omniscient means. He knows everything. Always. It's a bit of an insult to suggest that he can't remember something. He doesn't get Alzheimer's, you know. To say that God can't remember something that you can. Who's who's putting themselves in control here? You see the insidiousness of when you begin to pervert doctrine when you begin to pervert what the bible actually says now all of a sudden you know more than god this is what you're proposing you just sinned you knew you sinned but god's blind hey jokes on him this is what we propose people eat that stuff up eat it up so it's a bit of an insult to suggest that the omniscient God of the universe can't remember something. Yet, that is what some suppose. The second key principle, therefore, is this up here on the board. Our individual name. While God has forgiven us, He knows everything we think and do. All things, good or bad, are attributes of our name. If we are saved, the payment for sin sinning has been paid for by Christ. That means we are positionally sanctified, but not experientially. So, Stepping back now, what's the Spirit getting at in this series titled God Sees the Heart, But the World Sees the Choices We Make? Well, for starters, he's piggybacking off of our good work on good names. We did an awful lot of work, a couple little mini-series, even into this series. What is a good name? Well, Jesus Christ is the perfect one. We don't, but we can represent him in time by the grace of God. And so he's piggybacking on all this work on good names, and he's connecting uh, these concepts to the practical side of life. As always, he never lets us get away with much. Um, He always connects it back to the practical side of life. And what we're seeing is that there are two aspects of a good name. There are the pure facts as God sees them. There are pure facts as God sees them. But there's also what the world sees and then attributes to God as a result of how it perceives his children, whether its judgment is right or wrong is not the issue necessarily. God sees things purely. He sees the facts. look this is these are precious things. this is wood hay and straw. These are some good things, these are some bad things. God sees things purely. but the world... He doesn't, they don't see our hearts. They see certain fruit. That's what they see. That's what they're relegated to. And we'll get into that in a moment. So there's also what the world sees and attributes to God as a result of how it perceives his children. Whether its judgment is right or wrong isn't the issue. Apparently, that's not always the issue anyways. We consider the following on Sunday. Go to Luke 18.9. Luke 18.9. Luke 18, verse 9. So we saw this on Sunday. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In other words, they presumed they had a good name and viewed others with contempt. <clears throat> Two men went up into the temple to pray one Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He presumed a bad name, obviously, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I guess if God didn't know what sin was or couldn't see. Anyways, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this is from Sunday up here on the board. A good name is not established by world standards and then impressed upon the holy God of the universe. That is what the self-righteous Pharisees supposed. If I do all these things that are acceptable in society, God, you have to accept these as righteous deeds. You have to. In other words, I'm going to put you on trial. I'm going to make you my puppet. Hmm. Rather, a good name is held in high esteem by its owner in their heart, where fruit is the evidence of its existence, the net-net. A good name begins with humility. That's something, that's a theme throughout all of Jesus' parables, if you would. Jesus' ministry. Who did he, who did he, who was he attracted to? Who did he even want to spend his time with? Humble people. He despised. If you look at the, the spectrum of, you know, who he spent time with and who he really was repulsed by. It really had to do with humility versus arrogance. Humility is submissive to God's will, not double-souled, as James would say in James 1.8, being a double-minded, double-souled person, unstable in all his ways. Now I need you to concentrate. This takes us back to those two aspects I just mentioned. God sees purely, for one, but the world sees what it can god sees purely the world sees what it can we sometimes think that we are fooling the omniscient god when we create what i called on sunday avatars to fool the world well nobody's really going to know as long as i go to sunday service in my sunday best my neighbors to my right and my left are going to say well here's a good stand-up christian yay and you're a phony We sometimes think that we're fooling the omniscient God when we create avatars to fool the world. Here's what the Spirit had to say about that. First, he gave us a definition uh, from Oxford uh, Dictionary. An incarnation, embodiment, or manifestation of a person or idea. Notice it's not necessarily a real person. It's an incarnation or a manifestation of an idea, someone you want to be, someone you want to project. That's what an avatar is. And obviously, the conclusion is that an avatar isn't real. An avatar isn't real. And so there's a disconnect between you and your avatar. What God sees is pure and what the world is able to see. And what we see is, what we, if we read between the lines in Holy Scripture, sanctification brings these things together, if you would. Now, onto the meat and potatoes of Sunday's message up here on the board. A good name is not an avatar. It's not enough to God who sees the heart that you have a good looking avatar, that you have a presentable avatar, that you have a likable avatar. That's not the substance of a good name. We just saw the substance of a good name. The tax collector is the one with a crappy name, right? And the Pharisee is the one who had a good name. And which one did Jesus uh, have an affinity for? The tax collector. So if you want a good name, first and foremost, it has to begin with humility. And a humble person says... It's true, I am what I am by the grace of God. Anything good in me is by the grace of God. But I still struggle with sin. And I certainly don't turn my nose down to anyone because God knows how wretched I am. So a good name is not an avatar up here on the board. We don't get to, we don't get to project something palatable to others and expect them not to see right through our ruse. God is never fooled, for starters. The inherent danger in playing this game is that God is the one offended, up here on the board. The Christian avatar, arrogance is always looking for a discrepancy between that which is projected and that which is true, especially when it comes to God's children. So playing this game, putting an an avatar forward, um, eventually the truth comes out about you. Eventually even the world, and we're going to get into this in a moment, Even the world recognizes that you're a phony. Even the world says this this person's a phony. They're just plain pretend. They're giving up some kind of image that they're righteous, but it's really just nothing more than self-righteousness. Jesus told parables to clear this up for us. He essentially said that he despises phonies, or phoniness, I should say, preferring in his incarnation even, to spend time with folks that are humble and transparent. Therefore, we receive the following principle on Sunday, up here on the board, Jesus on so-called avatars, Jesus despised phoniness, preferring to spend his time with humble, transparent, flawed individuals. Why? Because that is soil that receives the gospel truth. An avatar isn't real enough to receive the gospel. That person's not even being honest with themselves. I mean, the gospel gets to the absolute root of life itself. Amen? We're talking about someone receiving eternal life as a gift from God. And God says, I just need you to be real. (laughs) My spirit's not going to waste his time with an avatar. That was the problem with the Pharisees. No, we're good prophesying in your name, I tithe, I do this. I'm not like them. I do all these things that look good. And Jesus said, you're a whitewashed tomb. Said differently, you can't evangelize a fake person because that person doesn't exist. That was Jesus' frustration with the religious folks. You guys are fakes. He said, you're hypocrites. Woe to you, hypocrites. He said it over and over, woe to you. Use ones that are wearing masks. That's what an avatar is, is it not? It's a mask. It's not who you are. It's what you want people to see. It's all painted. Sometimes it's a smile. And, you know, if you're one of the cranky people, sometimes it's always this way. It's always the woe is me mask, right? Different strokes. But it's not real. It's whatever conjures a reaction from other weak people. But nonetheless, you can't evangelize a fake person because that person doesn't exist. Stated differently, we evangelize real people, not their avatars. The fundamental issue is that most people want to project what they want others to see, not what they actually are. And this is heartbreaking for anybody that thinks like Christ or even remotely like Christ. This point is heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. Most people want to project what they want others to see, not what they actually are. And they wonder why this is true and why they always end up in, I don't know, awful relationships maybe. It's because only the flesh can love an avatar. Oh, look, you give the flesh an avatar, it'll take you out for a night on the town. Swirl you around buy you dinner because it loves phoniness it loves self-righteousness it loves masks the flesh loves an economy where the currency is image and a little something called creature credit the flesh loves that economy it thrives in that economy image is everything Creature credit. It's all it knows. It's offended by the grace of God. It'll try to pervert the grace of God, like we talked about earlier. The flesh loves that kind of an economy. It loves it because the world loves its own. John 15, 19. An avatar is exactly what the flesh desires because it can't face the fact that it is itself wretched, nor does it want others to see such things. You see, it's an economy. It's an agreed-upon economy. If I give you a dollar bill, nowadays the dollar is really just paper. You're accepting on faith that that is worth $1, right? That there's value there. If you didn't have faith in it, you wouldn't accept it. That's why some people are buying out of the U.S. currency and into other foreign currency, or gold, something that is globally accepted. But I digress. You get the point. The Bible tells we believers something diametrically opposed to all of that up here on the board. It says, be honest with yourself. That's what the Bible says. Be honest with yourself. And if you can't be honest with yourself, then you're obviously not going to be honest with others. So back up. If you spent your whole life showing others an avatar, something that's not even you, back up. Say, wait a minute, what am I doing here? No wonder why people, no wonder why I have the world's crappiest relationships. It's because I never give anybody me. I always give them some image that I want them to think is me. And then when I get tired and I can't uphold the image anymore, they see the real me, they say, you're a liar, I'm out of here. What do you expect? Whose fault is that? It's your fault for not being honest from the get-go. And I would argue that most people ought to stop before they even go venture off and engage with other people. Spend some real time with Jesus Christ, who loves you, who won't judge you, and realize that um, it's okay to be who you are. That it's good that you've been wonderfully made. That God didn't mess up. And to hell with people who don't accept you for who you are. Warts and all. Being honest with ourselves. Time and again, Jesus told parables about humility and transparency with those who desire to love us especially, starting with God, of course. Luke 18, 9-14, Matthew 21, 28-32. I was thinking about this uh, this morning even. Think about how much intimacy suffers when we aren't honest with each other about ourselves. Think about how much intimacy suffers when we aren't honest with each other about ourselves. Oddly, as is often the case, not always, but often the case, the other person may already know certain things about us that we refuse to admit to ourselves even. That's the odd thing about it. So the frustration isn't always that someone can't see us. It's that the other person is waiting for our honesty. The other person is saying, you know, I'd really love you more if you were just honest with me. I already know that's not true. I already know that's not you. Do I understand it? Yeah. But I could love you more if I actually could love you, not your avatar. Anybody that thinks like Christ thinks that way. Isn't looking to love avatars. Isn't looking to love phoniness. When we're honest with each other, it engenders trust, which really is the basis of any meaningful relationship. I'm up here on the board. <clears throat> Without trust, relationships never grow. And I say that meaning in a good way. Relationships never grow in a good way. How can you trust somebody that you don't know? How do you trust somebody who continues to lie about themselves, to themselves and therefore to you? Where's the trust factor? And if there is any trust that's given out, it's going to be broken because eventually that person can't keep up the charade. Eventually that person's strength gives out. Because everybody gets weak in their flesh. That's a fact. Without trust, relationships never grow in a good way. That's why our best relationships are fostered over long periods of time. Trust takes time. Amen? Yeah. I mean, even with God, let's face it. So we get saved, what do we learn? We learn how to trust Him more. Isn't that part of sanctification? Isn't that where your peace comes in? I trust the Lord more and more every time I pick up my Bible even he reassures me that his faithfulness is renewed every morning that he's always with me you know I didn't trust him a couple years ago I had a lot of more doubts before, but now I trust him all the more that's part of sanctification relationships and trust take time but imagine if God was a liar? what if you said you know you're sixty years old you've been Studying my word for for 40 years. And you love it, right? I had a few revisions, and I forgot to update you. (laughs) I changed my mind. I was just kidding. I'm nothing like that. Wouldn't you be like, whoa, wait a minute. Your entire sense of peace, your trust would be shot, right? Thank God he doesn't do that because he's immutable. But are people like that? Not generally, not generally, because they're weak. Without trust, relationships never grow. That's why it takes a long time. Avatars, avatars never stand the test of time because projection takes a lot of effort, and eventually people get tired, they trip up, they are revealed, and are forced to move on. Avatars never stand the test of time, because it's human flesh. Human strength is what is in view. That's what it takes to uphold an image. And people get tired, and they trip up, and they get revealed. And so what do they do? I'm out of here. Make up some excuse. Up here on the board, about to get personal. Not with me specifically, but with everyone listening to my voice. If you struggle with relationships, chances are you have historically given others an avatar, not your true self. And if they're fleshly, they've eaten it up, you see? They love you for a time. And then they resent you later. When they find out that you're a liar. That you're not who you said you are it's a big old mess. I call it dysfunction junction. It's a big old mess. That's what plagues marriages nowadays. People getting married. Two avatars get married. Not real people. Two avatars. I always get a kick out of that. And I'm not, don't be offended. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. Because you know, I hope you know my heart and I'm not trying to... Why, especially ladies, now don't get me wrong ladies, don't give me evil eyes, Why do you always have to lose weight before you get married? If you're chubby, if you're a set point, is that you're kind of chubby, why not get married chubby? Why do you have to be, why do you have to pretend for that one day that you're something you're not? I know that's a shallow thing, but do you know what I'm getting at? Like, why do you have to, why do you have to prepare to be married? Why not just get married? Why do you have to doll yourself up? If you're single, why do you have to doll yourself up? Go get someone. I'm not just talking about ladies now. Go get someone hook, line, and sinker. And then once you have me, you're like, "Eh, whatever. I'll just let myself go. Why do you got to do those things, men and women? Why? Isn't that just asking for a nightmare? I think so. I hope you know what I'm saying. I'm not trying to judge anybody who's done any of that. I'm not saying, well, I want to look good. All right, settle down. You get my point, right? I already know where some people's minds are going. How dare you? Get over yourself. You know what I'm saying? I'm just making a, uh, it's like a very shallow way of opening up the point. That's all I'm saying. Nonetheless, if you struggle with relationships, chances are you have historically given others an avatar, not your true self. Eventually, they figure out the person behind the mask and upset that you lied to them about who you really are deep inside. And that's not fair. That's not fair. It's probably the biggest argument I've ever heard from people that have shared such things. Man, that person was a salesperson. They got me to marry them. Turns out, they're nothing like they said were. They never, they're nothing like they were. They said they were. They pretended until they got me married. And then they changed. Eventually, people figure it out. This is just another iteration of Dysfunction Junction. My advice to you is to work on being real. Be yourself and stop being a slave to the world's opinion of you. Remember that Jesus chose you personally by name. Did we not just see that in the book of Revelation? Jesus Christ, the Creator, chose you by name, personally. And you're his bride. And he doesn't care if you're chubby. Matter of fact, he made you chubby. He doesn't care if you're dumb. He doesn't care if you're ugly. He doesn't care if you're whatever it is that you think isn't enough. He doesn't even, he didn't even care that you were a sinner. Just remember that Jesus chose you personally by name with all your warts and scars you're good enough for jesus then you're good enough for anyone remember that that's why people should never compromise if you're just not ready to share yourself with others that's okay too if you're if you're just not ready that's okay take the time to focus on christ solely but no more avatars. that's what the spirit's saying No more avatars. Not every request for intimacy requires a response. If you don't yet have the courage to share the truth, then don't make something more palatable up that is fake. You're better off projecting nothing than something untrue, especially when it comes to your own good name. If you really feel the need to share, then do as some of the most respected people in our lives do, share the ugly truth about yourself. I eat my own boogers. That's not true about me i'm just saying, <laughs> admit it. I eat other people's boogers, right <laughs> Todd I'm talking about you now <laughs> I'm trying to make you laugh because it's kind of you know it's like thick in here, you know small crowd, but it's pretty heavy seriously, don't you respect those people the most? the ones who say. Ugh. I know, right? But that's who I am. I respect that person a heck of a lot more than someone who comes in all shiny, but is a phony. Listen, people who love like Christ really just want to know who you are. I promise you, if you tell me who you are, I might not be able to associate with everyone. Just saying. Might not be able to run around if you got like if you're on the fringes of society. (laughs) But I love you. I will. And call me weak, by the way. That last comment is my own weakness. People who love like Christ just want to know who you are. They aren't interested in your avatar. As a matter of fact, like in my case, once you get to a certain level of, I don't want to call it mature, you know what I'm saying, a certain level, you're actually upset. It's kind of an affront when someone uh, insults you by supposing that you're going to accept their avatar as real. It's kind of like insulting. It's like, seriously, man? It's kind of insulting that you want me to accept something I know is not true about you. But I, I guess I'll play the charade until you grow up. People that love like Christ, they just want to know who you are. They aren't interested in your avatar. How do I know? Because Jesus wasn't interested in avatars. Jesus just wanted to know people, real people, humble people. Humility means starting with the point on the board, (laughs) being honest with yourself. Time and again, Jesus told parables about humility and transparency with those who desire to love us, especially, starting with God, of course. Let's go to the second scriptural reference, Matthew 21, 28. I can't believe we're almost out of time. Wow. Matthew 21, 28. It's good advice. All right. The Bible also says, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine. So just keep that in mind, too. You know, in other words, don't, you shouldn't be open up to everyone. If you're convinced someone loves you like Christ would... So that's what's being said here. Matthew twenty-one twenty-eight. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and, and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? He said, they said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward, so as to believe him. Up here on the board. On that passage, Matthew 2128 32 sorry for the eye chart, <clears throat> Jesus was saying that an honest, repentant prostitute has always had a better chance of being saved by God than a self-righteous avatar of a person. Always. A person who isn't playing some game of projection is the one who comes to terms with their wretchedness. They are fertile soil for the gospel seed. Matthew 13. So, with these biblical facts on the table, what we have is insight into what God deems a good name at a very individual, personal level. And lo and behold, when it comes to salvific, things, things concerning salvation, the only good name in play is Christ, for it is on his merits alone that God is willing to save us. After salvation, we are given the mantle of spreading the good news about Christ's good name. And one of the ways we do that is to reveal to the world as vessels of mercy that Christ himself has endorsed us personally. Christ himself has endorsed us personally. I'll give you one last analogy before I'm out of time here. Supposing I have an outstanding reputation. If I use my outstanding reputation to recommend you for a position, say in industry or even in ministry, and you turn out to be a horror story, does my good name suffer? Indeed it does. Just saying, you get got to baptize, so just do a good job. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's my name on the line, too. If I endorse you, it's my name on the line. That's the whole idea. That's why we don't just endorse anyone. So that's why I'm cautious with who I recommend, because it's my good name on the line. The same goes for Christianity proper up here on the board. A believer's good name. The word states that a good name isn't something we earn by cultivating an avatar. A good name is something real, like its owner. For example, the Pharisees were dishonest about themselves, preferring to project something righteous than accept righteousness in Christ. I think this is where I'll end. Let me read it again. A believer's good name. The word states that a good name isn't something we earn by cultivating an avatar. A good name is something real like its owner. For example, the Pharisees were dishonest about themselves, preferring to project something righteous than accept righteousness in Christ. Next time we're going to talk a lot more about self-righteousness and how it's um, infused with the flesh, etc. So let's bow our heads uh, and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening's message. Thank you for always guiding us and Thank you for giving us your spirit to guide us, to convict us of right and wrong, of of even spiritual morality, Father. Thank you for your patience with us as vessels of mercy. Thank you for showing us what true grace looks like, motivated by true love. We ask for your blessings as we take these things out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.